Hello, everyone. This is Brad Thomas with The Ground Up. And I'm back again with another exciting real estate interview. And today I'm joined with Troy Merkel. Troy is a partner with RSM, which is a global real estate accounting firm. Of course, I've interviewed RSM in the past, and I'm excited to have Troy back with us today. So thank you so much, Troy. Thanks, Brad. Happy to be here. Great. Well, would you mind uh, giving a, a little bit of background on what RSM actually does? I figure I'd let you uh, do that uh, better than me. Yeah, glad to. So RSM, uh, we are a global accounting and consulting firm, as you alluded to, with a, a significant real estate practice, both in U.S. and Canadian-based assets, but, but around the world. Uh, and uniquely positioned in the space in that we're the fifth largest, but we're primarily focused on the middle market, which is often the private equity space where you see a lot of real estate assets trading and or the family office space. And that's where we found the sweet spot. We call that the real economy as it, as it generates the majority of the GDP. Um, so we focus on clients in, in that aspect. And I work specifically in advising my clients on what's happening within market trends in the industry. Great. Well, uh, there's a really interesting report that uh, RSM just uh, published recently. Um, I'm referring to volume seven, spring 2021 edition. And you listed a, a lot of interesting uh, information and there's some charts that I'm gonna pull up on the screen here. Uh, the first one is related to the distressed real estate market that has not yet materialized. And you've got a chart that shows uh, the fact that there's, that the uh, COVID-19 is is not like any other recession. Can you explain that for us? Sure. So the most recent recession in everybody's memory is the Great Recession, going back 2008. Um, it really hit the real estate industry very much harder in 2009, 10, and 11. Um, and the difference between the Great Recession, which was the greatest economic shock that we dealt with um, since the Great Depression, uh, you know, earlier turn of the century, is that it was tied to fundamental investing issues. It was tied to market issues. We had really gotten out over our skis. We had over leveraged with a lot of debt. And the real estate market in particular uh, was sort of ground zero for what was going on in that market. But it was still generated or driven by economic issues. The problem when you compare this recession is that it's not really economic issues. Quite honestly, we were before COVID-19 hit things were projecting well. We had strong, sustainable growth. Um, we had continued for almost 10-year growth period coming out of the Great Recession. We had learned a lot of lessons from the mistakes past about leveraging and how we bundled our debt and things like that. And so the market was in, it was in a good spot. And the overall U.S. economy was generally in a good spot. The, the number one concern we heard about was an overly tight labor market with unemployment at record lows. And so they were, these were sort of good problems to have. They still were things that needed solutions, but we were chugging along. Well, COVID-19 hit, and all of a sudden we had an exogenous shock to the system, you know, completely outside of economic decisions or business decisions being made by, made by large industries. And the economy, not just in the U.S., but around the world, for the most part, shut down in an unprecedented way. And so it was hard to sort of predict, okay, well, what's going to happen here? Because we're used to shocks where there are financial flaws in the system or, re or corrections that need to be made. But in this case, it was, it was completely outside that. It was more health-related and pandemic-related. Um, so while you can see in our chart here, you know, the Great Recession, we saw a steep decline. It's represented in, in the green line when you see that on there, that steep decline by the RCA's measurement of the commercial property index. 
Um, by contrast, and that went for a prolonged period. By contrast here though, the COVID-19 recession, we actually continued to see an uptick. And for a few reasons, um, one, any sort of loss in value was expected to be temporary. So there was a big disconnect. You know, there was this thought early on that this was going to be a chance for opportunistic and distressed buyers to come into the market and, and make um, great investments. But that didn't really materialize uh, for a few reasons. One, the, um, it was expected to be temporary. So the, buy, the sellers were not ready to admit significant concessions. Uh, and two, we saw a lot more relief and forgiveness and collaborative um, work on the financial systems from both the bank and the federal government that we didn't see in the Great Recession. Um, so many, few, many fewer buyers were put in precarious positions where they were in the need to sell their assets because of debt issues or others. Um, so we actually saw property values rise overall during this period, which, which I don't think anybody thought was going to happen going in. Great. No, I certainly, uh, thinking back to the Great Recession, uh, certainly remember that one really well. And and it took a while, as you know, for that recovery to unfold. But uh, but now we're seeing it right before our eyes with this with COVID. So absolutely agree. Another interesting uh, chart that you provided here is, uh, and this is uh, entitled Real Estate Risk Remains Steady. And I thought this was interesting, uh, really a, a, a chart that uh, illustrates cap rates as well as the 10-year treasury. And of course, you know, we cover all of the different uh, property sectors, uh, both the major sectors you've identified on this chart being apartment, industrial, retail, and office, but also a lot of the sub, you know, categories or specialized categories, primarily in the REIT space. Uh, so can you touch on this chart a little bit? I think this is pretty telling. Yeah, so we've seen it remain pretty steady. And again, this was sort of the resiliency of the real estate market through this. It's, um, you know, where it took a kind of a beating 10 years ago, it's really held strong and been a stalwart to the economy. Um, so we saw cap rates hold steady across most asset classes. We saw some dipping in the 10-year. The 10 years kind of had a little bit more of a wilder ride. Um, but overall, rental collection rates held a lot better. Um, we were concerned that you, we would see a steep drop off in the rent collections, in particular in the multifamily space. And while we did see dips throughout the year, it never fell off a cliff as was expected and rebounded relatively quickly. I think the government stimulus by way of the increase in unemployment benefits, the, the additional stimulus that was also pumped into the economy um, in a sort of an unprecedented way. And in the past, we've often tried to fix from a top-down approach. We fixed the financial institutions last time. This time we really gave it to the people to keep them paying their bills. And it sort of propped up a lot of you know, sectors that are critical and, and a roof over your head is obviously very critical to a lot of people. So they were continuing able to pay their rent. Um, one area, you know, office space, we, because of the uncertainty about when you will be going back to the office or not, I know Brad, I was talking to you, you know, we're, we're just, it's, you know, first week of June, and we're just really soft opening, opening our office in Boston, uh, where I am, you know, Massachusetts, we lifted a lot of our restrictions that were in place. Um, a lot of corporate tenants, while they maybe look for sublease, and we've seen a significant increase in the sublease market, they continued to pay their rents. Um, retailers needed a lot of workout, but we saw a lot of um, give and take between landlords and retailers. But for the most part, rental rates held. And the other thing is, is on the demand side, we've seen 
uh, incredible amount of capital still in the marketplace looking for real estate. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of that, the next slide I thought was really interesting, um, which uh, is the amount of dry powder that you're seeing out there. Uh, it, it appears to be at record levels today. Can you touch on that chart? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it seems like, uh, you know, it was a recurring trend every year, I think, since 2015, when we pushed up over 150 billion in dry powder and, you know, dry powder being the cash sitting on the sidelines, raised in private equity groups, often the clients we work with, but not yet invested in real estate. Every year, it sort of just kept ticking up and at a relatively steep slope here. Um, until 2019. Uh, and then we saw sort of it peaked out and we saw a, a dip for the first time in almost five years. Um, as we, you know, we were approaching 250 billion in dry powder. Um, we didn't quite hit that mark and we started to dip down. But then, you know, the, you know, the V-shaped recovery or the K-shaped recovery you want to see there, we shot right back up, um, you know, by the end of 2020, as we saw the market stabilize, going back to those cap rates, they held rental payments were coming in um, and investors said, I want to get my cash in. I see opportunities to buy. And so more cash came in and actually we broke over the 250 billion in uh, dry powder for the first time. And so that dry powder, similar to what you're seeing, you know, everybody's dealing with the housing market. What you're seeing in the housing market with that insane demand that's coming to that dry powder is driving demand on the commercial real estate side of things, office, multifamily, assisted living, et cetera, industrial is incredibly hot. So that demand that's coming from these uh, unprecedented levels of dry powder uh, is also keeping the rate, the values up in the marketplace and keeping real estate really strong and growing through the pandemic. Great. Well, let's switch over, Troy, to another uh, part of the real property uh, food chain. Uh, and you also cover this in your report on the transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you write about the uh, $1.3 billion designated for construction related infrastructure, of which $621 billion is tied to transportation infrastructure, things like roads and bridges, um, you know, also uh, railroads, airports, uh, and you've got a really interesting chart here showing U.S. passenger by miles by type. So uh, obviously what really jumps out is the roadway number, mm -hmm. um, you know, 5.5, uh, what is that? Not millions, that'd be billion roadway visits. I want to make sure I'm that's miles, right? <laughs> roadway miles. So it's 8 million, so it'd be trillions, yeah. Trillion, yeah. There we go. <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of mileage. So uh, can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so the infrastructure of the U.S., I mean, the U.S. has always been sort of a driving country. I mean, we, we love our cars, we love our big cars, and we love having mobility. Um, and so that, that was pre-pandemic as well. And, you know, we haven't had the adoption of railway in the way that we've seen passenger railway in Europe or in Asia. And one of the things that comes along with that is the, the upkeep of the roads. And really for 40, 50 years, we haven't had significant investment. Um, the Obama era had some via the ARA, uh, the Recovery Act, which did do some investment in roads, but not, not to the extent that we're looking at here. So a lot of this has just been, been long overdue. Um, and it's going to become even more critical as we see sort of a shift out of the urban core to some of the suburbs where 
car travel is the dominant form of travel. You have really very little infrastructure was was way of subway and bus routes and things like that and other public transit. Um, so Americans, you know, I mean, you can see the next highest is, is air. And so like they fly, they rent a car or they ride in a car or they ride an Uber or whatever they're doing now. And so with having the infrastructure in place to support that travel is going to be critical. And I think one of the ones that was underlying here that could hopefully help with congestion, although it could go either way, is, you know, the investment in electron, uh, electric vehicles, um, some of the autonomous driving type concepts and things like that. Building the infrastructure for those electric vehicles is going to be really critical to their adoption. Having the ability to have power and charging stations routinely throughout um, the country is, is going to be critical. And if we have that, potentially we can move towards some of the more autonomous vehicles and maybe that can lighten up some of the congestion. We'll see what it looks like in the future of the city, but it's good to see that we're investing in these future of the cities because um, it's often that physical infrastructure of roads, it's not sexy, it's not always talked about, but it can choke out the development and the real estate um, of a location very quickly. I mean, people talk about location, location, location. If you're talking about office or industrial or some retail, the ability to access this infrastructure is the location elements they're talking about. Yeah. Well, but, uh, Troy, I want to touch on the very last chart uh, I'll reference here is, uh, and I know this is a big, uh, a big area for uh, your company, as well as some of the family offices that we work with is ESG. So mm -hmm. I'm now referring to the aging U.S. commercial building stock uh, that is primed for the ESG investment. Can you touch on that slide? Yeah. So ESG has been, uh, you know, a hot topic for the last few years and it continues to build momentum and you know the ability to do something good with your investment while earning a return has become more and more prevalent as you mentioned to a family office in particular especially as we're seeing sort of the generational wealth transfer the new generation taking over the wealth has different viewpoints on how it should be invested what should be the strategy of the businesses they're investing in uh, so some of the things we help with a lot is, you know, evaluating what does it mean to be ESG? What is, how do you measure that? And it, it's very hard. And it, admittedly, it's still a gray area. You know, in real estate, we have some things like LEED certified and green certified that have been around for a while. But when we're looking at social good governance, I think in particular with women in real estate and the, um, the need to have more women in real estate and also women have been most directly impacted by the pandemic with childcare and things like that. Um, you know, we're seeing that the push for an ESG focused investment is critical. And a lot of that ESG investment in some ways is coming into housing affordability. Um, we're, we're seeing that with the Biden administration's pledge to help um, renovate or rehabilitate over 2 million homes. Um, to help bring in that housing affordability. We're seeing more family offices look at that affordability, the sustainability of um, certain investments. And so we're continuing to see that rise to prominence and, and something that our clients are interested in. Great, well, Troy, uh, I think everybody's very interested in what you had to say today. So thank you for your time and uh, going through this with us here at RSG. And I look forward to uh, maybe reconnecting with you again. I know. You do have a lot of uh, a lot of information uh, on your on the websites, which is uh, which I refer to as just RSG. Is it RSG.com, Troy? I'm trying to remember the it's website. It's 
rsmus.com. 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 Great. Well, listen, I uh, want to thank you again for your time and uh, it's been very helpful. And uh, hopefully you'll, uh, uh, we'll definitely invite you back again here uh, very soon. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brad. Great. Thank you so much, Troy.